0: All right, let's go Ruth chapter 1, Ruth chapter 1, if you're new to the Bible, new to the Old Testament, uh, Ruth is a tiny little book, kind of sandwiched in between Judges and 1 Samuel, Uh, so you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and see, you're all good church kids, you know. Now, uh, Miss Linda got some new kids in her small group class last week. They'll be reciting all the books of the Bible here in the next month or so. And so uh, they'll know where Ruth is, so you need to know where Ruth is. All right, um, so if you don't have a Bible, with, I think we'll have the text up on the screen behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered on the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that is incredibly simple. You you're ready for it? We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to be shaped by that knowing him. And if the scriptures are what he uses to do that in your heart and life, then like it's just like do the math real quick. It's something that makes sense. It's like common sense to be digging into the scriptures, digging into his word as much as possible. That's where he will show himself to you. Are confident that he'll use it. And so if you don't have a Bible of your very own, take that one and I'll call it a good day. Uh, so um summer's basically over, right? Like, is that how that works? Like like the 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 calendar changed to September, kids are back in school. All the vacations are filed away. I mean, I I get the idea of like false fall. I know it's going to be in the mid 80s again next week. All right. All right. But like, like we've made the break. Right. Like all of your favorite stores now have pumpkin flavor nonsense on the shelf. (laughs) Right. I drove by the the, one of the apple orchards on the way in this morning. Those apples are starting to look pretty good. (laughs) Like, I give it two weeks before somebody's posting pictures on Facebook where they're sweating in their flannel shirt as they're trying to go pick apples, all right? Like, you'll be suffering through it, but it's culturally required, all right? Uh, No, like, fall is here. The world is starting to shift into all things autumn, all right? And whether you think it's a little early, or whether you think it's not coming fast enough, all right, like... Like, fall is this kind of this thing that as the, as the season changes, everybody gets either excited about it or not, or, or, or raring to go or not, and either we can debate the merits of the change, or or we can use that kind of sense of shift, that sense of adjustment to begin to leverage it for our own purposes. Does that sound like a better plan? Sounds like a smart thing to me. We, we, we can kick off, use it to kick off new things in our, our church family. And like, I don't know if you know this, but we got our, our midweek activities, our Wednesday night stuff that's coming back this week. It's something to get excited about. We got a dinner and Bible study, like poppy seed chicken and graded Bible studies. Who doesn't get excited about that? Like some of us call that a good date night, all right? Depending on your personality, that's either something you're into or you're not. Like, we, we shut down a lot of our regular rhythms for the summer, and it's time to kick all those things back off. The, and so this shift into fall, this shift into autumn, kind of helps us kind of set the stage and launch well from those things. But it, we, it doesn't have to just be midweek stuff. We can also leverage that shift in here. I think it's, I think we can use that kind of changing of the seasons to start a new thing in, in this room on Sunday mornings. I want to kick off a new effort today that helps us walk through a book of the Bible together, the book of Ruth. And if you're wondering, um, like, why why Ruth? (laughs) Um, For a couple of reasons. Uh, Number one, because it's God's Word and it's guaranteed to be profitable for us, beneficial for us, no matter where we turn. And so that seems like a wise thing to do. Um, But there's a second reason, maybe a little more selfish reason. and it's honestly because it's never crossed my mind to preach the Ruth before. Anybody, anybody else think about those things? Or oh, what's, what's, what's Stephen going to go do next? I, I promise you, I've never gone. You know what? We need to do Ruth. <laughs> it's never crossed my mind. Uh, Ruth has been described um, by a lot of people as the Bible's love story, Right? the Bible's love story it's seen as a, a romance there's a will they won't they kind of kind of vibe kind of coursing through it for a lot of guys or at least for some guys Ruth often gets left on the shelf because it's perceived by them in the same way as being asked to sit down with their wife and enjoy a rom-com Now good husbands will enjoy that rom-com with a smile on their face They will Make some popcorn, they'll grab a blanket. Give the girl a foot rub while you're at it. Just dote on her. <laughs> Celebrate her. Do the thing that she's interested in. But also, let's be honest, right? Like, if a guy is in a situation where he genuinely, genuinely gets to pick the movie, is that the one he's aiming for? It's not, it's just not what the story that they're interested in. And I'll be truthful this morning. It's not usually the story I'm interested in. That's kind of why Ruth has always never been on my radar. Uh, it's, well, let's go to a Pauline epistle. Let's, let's, let's learn how to do life better. <laughs> He'll tell us what to do and how we're stupid, and it'll be great. <laughs> Lest we be min- misunderstood, though, um, and I've actually given this a lot of thought, it's not romance as a topic that we're disinterested in. When it comes to the rom-com, gentlemen, it's the cheesiness that it comes packaged in. Are you with me on that? Or maybe you haven't given this as much thought of as I have. It's the illogically attractive actors who shouldn't be single by this stage of their life, but somehow inexplicably they are. All right? They've got unrealistic problems, which cause them to meet cute, we're told, all right? Uh, But they almost blow up the relationship with a misunderstanding that could easily be explained away by grown-ups in about 30 seconds, but they don't talk to each other, so it becomes this thing that festers, right? You've seen this story before. All to be capped off by a roll credit sequence that completely ignores how hard it's going to be for that couple to spend their life together for the rest of their lives. Have you seen this rom-com before? Now, to be clear, Action movies are equally unrealistic, but at least we get to watch stuff blow up. <laughs> <laughs> and so a lot of guys, myself included, to be honest, my, my, a lot of guys will keep Ruth at arm's length simply because of the, they, they lump it into the way that they perceive other romance stories. It gets thrown into the mix. But not only is that robbing ourselves of a piece of scripture that God has clearly given to us for our good and for our education, but also what's most appealing about the book of Ruth is that despite how some people try to categorize it, it doesn't read like a modern rom-com at all. It's nowhere close. Ruth ain't got no room for cheesy. Ruth is real. In fact, Ruth is downright gritty. While modern rom-coms are often used as a form of escapism from the real world, while they're often used in a way that, that, that kind of tries to chase after and long after something than, other than what's real and right in front of your face, any honest reading of the book of Ruth will leave you overwhelmed by the sovereignty and the goodness of God in every arena of your very real life. Ruth is different. So with that, I want to look at what, after better reflection, I think might just be the greatest romance story the world's ever seen. Now, if you're going to have a romance story, you need to set the stage with a descent into disaster. That's how they all work. This one's no different, so let's look at it. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. The writer of Ruth says this, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Let's call a time out there. All right, so there's a load of context here, right? Like already, we're, we're digging the hole deep. Uh, we don't know who the author of Ruth is, nor do we know exactly when the story of Ruth was written. But the author is very, very intentional to, tell, to kind of tie this story into a very, very specific time period in Israel's history. The time of the judges, we're told. Ruth comes after the book of Judges, all right? but it, we're told that it's happening at the exact same time as the book of Judges. So if you want to broaden your kind of literary vocabulary, Ruth is what's called a pastoral vignette. Doesn't that sound fancy? Just throw that around the coffee shop later this week. It's also called an idol IDYLL not IDOL those are different words idol and so the book of Ruth zooms in on a smaller story told in the middle of a larger story that we all know is playing out that's the context all right and that context that story that larger story is the judges, the time period of, that the judges ruled, all right? And so the story is taking place in a quaint little rural setting that is kind of somewhat separated from the story, but at the very same time, incredibly influenced by the larger story. That's the game for the book of Ruth. And so what's that larger story? The, the days when the judges ruled. And if you're new to the Bible, that may sound like a pretty awesome time. It ain't. It's not a good time at all. Uh, The book of Judges, if you're not familiar, describes a two to three hundred year period in Israel's history that was full of chaos and sin and slavery and sorrow. What a fun time to be alive, right? God's people had finally entered into the promised land. They had been uh, rescued from slavery in Egypt. They had wandered through the wilderness for a generation. And then Joshua leads them across the Jordan River to a happily ever after, right? They're told that they need to drive out all the pagan inhabitants of the land. And they only kind of halfway do that. So they're surrounded by all these other pagan nations. They end up settling down before finishing what God told them to finish. And the book of Judges tells the story of how that went. Anybody want to guess how that went? It was really, really bad. The pagan nations around them influence israel into sin into idolatry the the sin grows worse and worse and worse god disciplines israel their lives and their society begins to fall apart they become enslaved by the pagan nations around them and the israelites go oh and they finally wake up and they call out to god in repentance and beg god to save them and so god raises up a deliverer a, a warrior king figure called a judge to rescue them and he sets them free and he and they all come to physical salvation again. And then in a few years, the process starts all over. They never learn. For two to three hundred years, the days when the judges ruled was not a pleasant time period in Israel's history. Not in any way, shape, or form. It is most succinctly described by the very last line in the book of Judges, which says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We don't know exactly when in those days that the story of Ruth plays out. We know it's somewhere near the end of that time period. But rest assured, the intent of the author of Ruth is to remind us that these are not fun days. These are dark days. These are incredibly dark days. The famine is no mere coincidence. Israel is stubborn and God is breaking their stubbornness. He's calling them to repentance. The call, the expectation on Israel as a nation is to repent of their sin, to repent of their idolatry and actually repent. Not not just on a surface level, no, actually repent. They They just don't get it yet. Generation after generation after generation, the cycle continues. And so our pastoral vignette, our idol, is playing out in a time period where God's people are walking in open sin and disobedience. They are blazing their own pathway instead of repenting and submitting to God. And that reality shapes how we read the rest of verse 1. Look at it. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah, they went into the country of Moab and remained there. So there's a famine in the land of Israel, and that famine reaches the tiny backwater town called Bethlehem. All right, Nobody's paying attention to Bethlehem. We've got 2,000 years of church history and really bad like children's Christmas plays to teach us that Bethlehem ends up being important. None of that's happened yet. Nobody is paying attention to Bethlehem at all. But the famine finally reaches Bethlehem. There's layers of irony here. One, not only is this promised land supposed to come with the tagline, a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, where, where's that at? But two, the name Bethlehem literally means house of bread. House of bread. If you're, if you're going to find bread anywhere in the middle of a giant famine, it probably ought to be at the place where they grow it and make it. Like if you can't find bread in Bethlehem, you got a real famine on your hands. And so if even Bethlehem is struggling to eat, this famine must be incredibly severe. And so we're told that Elimelech packs up his family, wife, two sons. He packs them up and they sojourn, they travel to the land of Moab. They flee the place where there is a food shortage and they head off to a new land to find food. And saying it like that doesn't it? Like, sounds kind of noble, right? I mean, we're talking about a refugee situation. If we're, if those are the, the terms that we're dealing with here, how could you, how could you ever cast blame on old Limelech? Um, just trying, just trying to provide for his family. Wouldn't you do the same thing? I, I'd do the same thing. But there are problems with that read. And any, person in the original audience of Ruth would have seen it immediately for what it is, Um, if you know where Moab is and what Moab is, it changes how you see old Elimelech. For starters, Moab sits directly on the other side of the Dead Sea from Bethlehem. It's like 25 miles. It's like 25 miles apart. Depending on where they end up in the land of Moab, uh, it could be as much as maybe 35 miles. Elimelech did not move his family across the known world. He moved them to the next town over. And so it's, it's, it's not like they packed up everything and, and went far away from the famine. And this is one of the reasons why we can point to the famine in Israel as a spiritual reality rather than just some natural phenomenon. All right? uh, because if this famine isn't also affecting Moab, if it's only localized to Israel, if they can find plenty of food to eat in Moab, and Israel itself is the one that they got to worry about, all right? it, it, like we're not talking about weather patterns here. We're talking about God's hand withholding fruitfulness as he calls Israel to repent. There's a difference between those two things. This isn't some big geographical event. No, Israel is suffering a famine. And the neighboring nations are not. And so follow me here. Elimelech picks up his family to escape a situation that God put them in in order to call them to repentance. Oh, but they're hungry. I mean, how could you cast blame? They're they're hungry. How do do you know he's avoiding repentance? Because we also know what Moab is. We also know what Moab is. Of the pagan nations surrounding Israel, Moab might just be the worst of them. They really may, might just be the worst of them. The Moabites' origin story plays out in Genesis 19, Lot and his daughters. There's kids in the room, so I'll just leave it at that. One of those sons named Moab, the father, the patriarch of the Moabite people. The Moabites worshipped a false god called Chemosh or Chemosh. 2 Kings 3 tells a story of the king of Moab making a sacrifice on the city wall of his own son, his firstborn son, so that he wouldn't lose a battle. Pleasant guy. Cute little deity. There's also a good bit of evidence. We're not 100% certain, but there's pretty solid evidence to argue that Chemosh is just another name for a different false god of the ancient Semitic world called Molech. Maybe heard that name before. You worship that one with regular child sacrifice. And so, yes, Elimelech packs up his family in search of finding a better life. That, that is true, yes. But he does so by avoiding an obviously spiritual problem by taking his family to an even more wicked place. And he knows it. This isn't lost on Elimelech. He knows exactly who Moab is. The call in Israel is to repent of their sin and to repent of their idolatry. The call for them is to turn from their ways and finally trust God and God alone. But instead of repentance and instead of trust, Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, by the way, does the exact opposite of what his name means and he chooses instead to trust his own ability to provide. He runs for help into the arms of a people more wicked than his own. You ever been in a situation where, in your life where, where you, like, you were certain, you knew that God was teaching you something, but you didn't care? Am I the only one that's ever been guilty of that? You pressed on into your rebellion just a little bit further. You hardened your heart to his call and you took another step forward into your sin? I'm probably the only one. Elimelech is dragging his family into his further disobedience. And like sin always does, I I hope you've seen this in your life, but as sin always does, it takes another step, and then it takes another step, and then it takes another step, and God help us, it takes another step. And in verse 1, we see that Elimelech... And his family sojourn in the land. Sojourn means to travel. And so they initially travel to the neighboring land to find food. But at the end of verse 2, we see that they commit to stay there. They commit to stay there. They settled in to build a life together in Moab. This wasn't some missionary venture. They didn't go into the dark place so they could try to be light in the dark place and call other people to the light. No, Elimelech saw Moab for what it is, and he decided that it would be a benefit to himself and his family if they stuck around a little longer. This is a good and prosperous place for us. Let's plant ourselves here. Elimelech left the house of bread in the land that was supposed to be flowing with milk and honey, and he determined to chase after fruitfulness on his own terms. But as is often the case, our, our sinful choices, and a lot of times they don't provide the fruitfulness that we initially thought they would provide. So look at verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi died. She was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. So, the grand plan, right? The grand plan was to have abundance instead of famine, right? That, that's, like, that's why they moved. That's why they settled in Moab. This will, this will be the place where we will thrive. This is the place where we will have all that we ever wanted. And so the grand plan was to have abundance instead of famine. So fast forward however long, we're not exactly sure. But now that they've spent some time in Moab, and what's to show for it? As far as the story is concerned, not much. There's no mention that life is easier, no mention that it's harder, anywhere in between. We're just told that after some time, Elimelech dies. We're not told how. doesn't seem to be a part of the story that the author of Ruth thinks that we need to know. But the man who spearheaded this whole venture, he's not in the picture anymore. Well, did he ever come to repentance? I don't know. We're not told, and honestly, there's not a lot in the story that would cause us to believe that he did. We're just told that his wife, Naomi, is left there with her two sons, Malan and Killian. We don't know how old the boys are at this point. There's reason to think that they're adult-ish, all right, um... They're living in an incredibly male focused culture, male focused society. And because Naomi is both a woman and a foreigner in a strange land, like, she would have been entirely dependent upon her two adult sons to provide for her. Um, so it gives us reason to think that they're probably grown ups by the time that Elimelech passes away. And so even though she would certainly grieve you know, the loss of her husband. Obviously so. The tone in verse three, in the first half of verse four, it it seems to be mixed with a little bit of joy. Did you see that? Where does that joy come from? Her sons get married. Wouldn't you look forward to to that too? To they get married to Moabite girls, Orpah and Ruth. It's here. Right here that we have to deal with um, an issue that a lot of people, I think, grossly misunderstand about the Old Testament. Um, the idea that Elimelech and his family would seek to live in the sinful land of Moab, that's, that's one thing. Um, the idea that the boys would marry Moabite women as their wives, that's another thing entirely. Um, in Deuteronomy 7.3, Upon entering into the promised land, the Israelites were given an explicit command from God not to intermarry with the pagan nations surrounding them. Uh, in that moment, God specifically uh, mentioned seven nations by name. The Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. All right? Next time I'm asking you to read, I'm giving you that text. I don't know if you noticed, though, Moabites aren't on that list. So, does that mean God's cool with it? I mean, those other, those other nations are a problem, obviously, but, I mean, you didn't mention the Moabites. Those of you with kids, how you feeling about your son or daughter pointing out that you didn't exactly mention a specific thing on your list of stuff not to do? <laughs> How's that going for them? Now, the Moabites are obviously inferred here. And sadly, I would say tragically, texts like this have been used in abusive ways to perpetuate wicked philosophy in the history of the church. Absolutely wicked philosophy. People have pointed to Deuteronomy 7 and the, sto- the fallout of Ruth's story even. Um, they have pointed to that as arguments against things like interracial marriage and other things, but that's not what God forbid. It wasn't the nations around them that was the problem. Deuteronomy 73 forbids intermarrying with the pagan nations, and Deuteronomy 74 tells us exactly why. quote, "For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods." So according to Deuteronomy, according to Ruth, it's never been a race issue, What it's always been is a worship issue. It's a, "What are you aiming at as a family issue? So if you were confused about it at all this morning, let me set the record straight. God did not forbid Israelites from interracial marriage. He forbade them from marrying someone that didn't believe what they believed. Why? Because it would cause them to fall away. That's why. And so Christian, hear me just as clearly this morning. The Levitical code may no longer weigh on us in the same manner or the same authority as it did in the nation of Israel. That is true, but that does not mean that there's no wisdom here for us to glean from. God has the exact same concern for you as he had for the nation, his covenant people, entering into the promised land. It is still a worship issue. It is still a what are you aiming at as a family issue. If you're single but pursuing a relationship with someone who doesn't know Jesus, hear the scripture's wisdom this morning. It's unwise. It's unwise. It has a high likelihood of taking you where you don't want to go, at least what you say you don't want to go, spiritually. I'll get off my soapbox and see how many emails I get this week. Does that mean that God can't redeem the situation? No, obviously he can. Obviously he can, and and we rightly celebrate that when he does so, but like redeemable and preferable are not the same thing. They're not at all the same thing. Don't go chasing after what's unwise. So, Malan and Killian, they both marry moabite girls they come with both family ties and an ingrained culture that's going to look very different from what god has called his covenant people to to do and to be and so we're seeing another step here by this family into a sinfulness that listen could have been repented of Like multiple times throughout the course of this story, like I know it fast forwards all these years, but over and over again throughout the life of this family, there have been opportunity after opportunity after opportunity opportunity for them to turn and go back to where God told them to be. Over and over again, they could have done this and they could have done that, and they keep taking step after step after step into something they explicitly were told not to do. So now we get to verse 4. The rest of verse 4. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So Naomi loses her husband, but she still holds on to the hope of, like, the potential futures of her children and grandchildren, right? Like, Like, that's not unlike some women in our world today in our own culture. In most cases, like we would say it's a good gift from the Lord to be able to kind of look to those things and cling to those things as you are walking through personal sorrow. We've got people in this room right now who are living the exact same life. Of course, you lean into that. Like Naomi has suffered loss, but she also eagerly awaits what every mother-in-law in her situation would be awaiting. She looks forward to grandkids. Can you just imagine Naomi ducking into Orpah's and Ruth's homes a couple times each week? Got any news for me? <laughs> how, you, how you feeling today, honey? <laughs> I see you're wearing your tunic a little differently than you did last week. Is there a reason why? <laughs> that, that gentle but not so gentle pressure that every mother-in-law gives? <laughs> We're told that Malan and Killian are married to these young women for 10 years. And that's significant because in that culture, absolutely no one is choosing not to have children. Not a one. It's inferred in the text that both Orpa and Ruth are barren. And again, this, this creates a ton of questions for some people, right? Most notably, is barrenness some kind of punishment from the Lord for sin? It's an obvious question that rolls out of this verse, right? Like, and, and the vast majority of the time, the answer is obviously no. Not at all. In most cases, God withholding children from a couple has nothing to do with sin at all. It's more a matter of his timing and his good plan for their lives. In fact, Christians have sometimes done great, incredible harm to couples struggling with infertility by suggesting anything of the sort. Acting like Job's friends who speak without understanding. But at the same time, at the same time, at at risk of speaking incredibly hard truths this morning, it would be both intellectually dishonest and biblically unfaithful to argue that it's never the case. To argue that that God does never do that. The implication here in Ruth 1 is that this is what's going on with Ruth and Orpah. Not their sin, but the sin of a disobedient family. It seems, it seems like God will not give Elimelech the fruitfulness he so desperately longed for in a foreign land. He's tried to make fruitfulness for himself, and God will not allow him to have it. If that wasn't bad enough, the suffering isn't over yet. The reason why we know that Malan and Killian were married for 10 years is because it's after those 10 years that we're told that they die as well, both of them. Just like their father. We have no idea how it happened. We have no idea what or why. Uh, Why? Because it's not their story. We're not told anything about it. But at the end of verse 5, we see sorrow turning all the way into personal tragedy. Right? Naomi has lost her husband. While living in this foreign land, and she, now she's lost her sons too. What do you think the role was in Naomi ending up in Moab? Do you think she and Elimelech talked about it before they set out? Was it, was it his idea and she just kind of followed along? Did they argue about it? Was it her idea and he said, all right, fine, we'll go? What, 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 do you, what role do you think Naomi had in ending up in Moab? Maybe it was a bunch, maybe it was nothing at all. But whatever the case... Whatever the case, Naomi has now lost everything she came to Moab with. It's all gone. All she's left with is regret and two daughters-in-law who honestly could probably be better off without her. That's the situation. Just saying, I don't know if you've noticed this before, but the real world, it doesn't work like a romantic comedy. Have we learned this about life yet? Pretend problems that create awkward moments for a couple to meet cute. That's not how life works in a sin-shattered world. It just doesn't. What Naomi and Ruth and Orpah are experiencing right now, this is real brokenness. A brokenness that's created by an incredibly tangled web of personal and familial and societal sin all of its bearing weight. It's a brokenness that somehow, in a way that's incredibly beyond trite and simplistic explanations, it to—it it to, seems to combine both like the consequences of our own actions and things that have been robbed from us from a world that just doesn't ever work right. Maybe you haven't come anywhere close to losing as much as Naomi did. Man, I hope you haven't come anywhere as close to losing as much as Naomi did. Hope you're far from that. But at the same time, I don't think I have to go up too far out on a limb this morning to think that and assume that everyone in this room has probably experienced loss and heartache and broken consequences that you can't seem to wrap your head all the way around. Are we all there? I know I'm there. So the obvious next question is, what do we do when the sin-brokenness of our own actions and the sin-brokenness of the world bears its full weight upon us? What do we do? We're going to spend the next few weeks digging into the responses of Naomi and Ruth. It's actually a really, really good story. But before we get there, what do you do? Like, lock this one in. What do you do when your world falls apart? What do you do when God seems to take away from you the very thing that you have wrapped your identity and your future around? What's your next step in that moment? I mean, is this a place to be honest? Like, I don't know if it's a place to be honest. Like, like how many of us, like even though we know the right spiritually sounding answer, how many of us could confess this morning that, that we often turn to bitterness? Or maybe, maybe we even turn deeper into our sin, deeper into our rebellion. Those are all just other forms of trying to escape the problem like Elimelech did. He ran away from the call. He dragged his family away from the call. In the days when the judges ruled, everyone, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. The call on Israel in those days was to truly repent and, and, like more, and trust more deeply in the Lord. Elimelech set out to fix it all himself. I'm more like Elimelech than I like to believe I am. And I get it, the man's trying to take care of his family, provide opportunity and a future for them. There's some nobility in it if you frame it exactly that way. But cosmic brokenness cannot be solved by man-made solutions. It can't. Sometimes duct tape ain't enough to fix our structural damage. I like to pretend it is, but it ain't there. What a lima-like needed what Naomi and Ruth and Orpa need is a real savior not man-made knockoffs you need a real savior and over the course of this story we're going to begin to get glimpses of a great redeemer a true redeemer with a capital R we're going to get glimpses of that. We'll see flashes of noble character from several of the personalities in the story. And we will be honest, we're going to try to be intentional about stepping back and pointing to those flashes of noble character and celebrating those things. Absolutely. But those flashes are all intended, designed to point us beyond themselves and onto a Redeemer to come who is actually capable of bringing true and forever redemption. That's what the story of Ruth is about. By the grace of God, we, we, we got the full canon, the whole scriptures to lean on this in this moment. We like the original readers of Ruth, like they, they don't have that. They're going, all right, who's this Redeemer gonna be? We get to know the answer already. Question that remains though is: Do you know him personally? Do you actually know this Redeemer? If you're here this morning. And you're not a follower of Jesus yet. We can, we can change that today. The Bible teaches that we are all, by default, separated relationally from God because of our sin, and that we are owed the just and right punishment for sin, death. But the Bible also teaches that God stepped into the brokenness of this world in order to reconcile us to Him In fullness, the eternal Son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that neither you nor I am capable of living. He died on the cross as an innocent substitute in your place to make payment for your sin. He did not stay on the cross. He was taken down and he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect righteousness and as a down payment for our future resurrection as well. And I'd love to be helpful to you. In a second, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. It's a time that we call people to put some action, some response to what God is calling them to. And when you want somebody to talk to, I'm here for it. But what if you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus? What about us? How do we respond? Well, same way we do every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, man, I think he's showing us that he is the real redeemer we so desperately long for, even as all of our man-made fake redeemers fall, around, fall down around us. As all of our man-made attempts to fix the problem shatter before our eyes, he's the one that's standing like he's got it, because he's got it. So we probably ought to get smart and cling to him instead of our man-made plans. I don't know it's just an idea. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe that's by formally joining our church family, or maybe it's by finally saying yes to his call uh, to obedience in being baptized, or maybe he's calling you to take the gospel to some faraway place. You need to make that public today. I'd love to be helpful to you in those as well. But whoever you are, however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together as a church family. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the book of Ruth. I am someone who often tries to fix the problems I created for myself. And in doing so, I usually dig the hole much deeper. Over and over and over and over again. But you are good. You are mighty to save. And I can't think of a time when the best plan for me wasn't something other than what you originally called me to do. I am a I am often even guilty of dragging others into my sin. But God, there's no sin too great that your arm cannot reach. And so as we spend the next several weeks digging into one of your greatest redemption stories, would you you call us to repent, help us see that call long before we ever get to Elimelech levels? We love you. For those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear? Call people into your kingdom this morning.